Hey there, this is Jeff Finley, and this is the Maker Mistaker podcast. And today I've got a cool show today. I've got April Hanna. Um, she's the guest on the show because we're going to talk about the book I just finished reading called The Truth, an uncomfortable book about relationships by Neil Strauss. I just posted a blog article about it, kind of explaining my thoughts, but I wanted to bring April on the show to give a female perspective. She reached out to me. So you might recognize her voice from a, a past episode that we had called, uh, she has the, her own podcast called the Path 11 podcast about consciousness, out of body experiences and stuff like that. And that's how I first heard of her. And then I invited her and Mike of that show onto my show to talk about, you know, what they do and everything. And, um, so we've been following each other here and there. And then recently she reached out to me and really wanted to collaborate, talk about she's interested in this in relationships and how men and women interact with each other and how it relates to mental health and spirituality and, you know, growth, personal growth and stuff. So I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to connect. I was reading the book and she was reading the book at the same time. I'm like, let's let's get on the show and talk about our feelings, because this is a pretty controversial book. It's it's a really honest, blunt, uncomfortable book about relationships and um yeah. So, April, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was uh, kind of funny how we collaborated through the podcast for Path 11. And then when I was following some of your podcasts that you were putting out there and what you were talking about, about your journey and things of that sort, I mean, I'm dealing with that pretty much on a daily basis with my clients who are, you know, coming in and talking about relationships. And that's why I wanted to reach out to you to say, I love talking about relationships and men and women and monogamy and what's going on here, because I'm seeing so many people coming in about infidelity issues and things of that sort when it's, you know, related to relationships. And then as we were talking, I thought it was funny. You're like, well, I'm in the middle of this book. And I said, no kidding. I am too. So I thought that was really cool that at the same time we were... Um, read this book. I actually came across this book. I think it was um, an article that Tim Ferriss posted on Facebook that gave an excerpt of this book. Yep. And that's how I stumbled upon it. And I was kind of like, whoa, what is this about? And I thought it was a little racy. And I, you know, just kind of started to read it. And that's how I found the book. Yeah, I actually found it this through Tim Ferriss, that same article, I think, because one of my other readers uh, reached out to me, and she uh, sent me that link. And and I was like, oh, no, no way. Neil Strauss has a new book out because I had read the game uh, about five years ago. And, you know, it's kind of embarrassing to admit that I, I was a big fan of it because, I mean, it's all about, you know, pickup artists and the underground seduction culture. I mean, not that I was in that culture, but it was so fascinating. You know, I, I, I loved learning about relationships and dating and, and, and love and whatever that is. So, I mean, Neil Strauss, the way you write it, wrote it was so entertaining, for lack of a better word. And I couldn't put the book down. And so I, that was the first I heard that he actually had a new book out. And he called it The Truth. It's highly pretentious. And it's like, okay, what has he got to say? What is this guy who used to who wrote this book on picking up women? What has he got to say about relationships? And I read that excerpt from Tim Ferriss's blog. And it was like, actually, I only read part of it because I was it was really long. And I was like, I'm just going to get the book and, listen, and read it there. But it was all about his exploration into non-monogamy so polyamory orgies sex parties uh swinging all these different lifestyles and also he went to sex addiction rehab and broke up with his girlfriend after cheating on her and i mean it was his exploration into love and sex for him so it was quite an adventure and the truth it was like you know in typical neil style super entertaining like Every chapter ends and you just want to keep going to the next chapter to figure out where his story unfolds. So what did you think? What was your initial impression? Well, yeah, I thought that the topic was 
you know, very interesting. More recently, I would say in the year, year and a half, I've, my practice just in the mental health counseling field has switched more heavily to couples, you know, couples coming in and more, I would say, females coming in who may, might be exploring outside of their marriage. And I just have been on more of a personal mission, too, to try to understand, you know, what is all of this about? I have a supervisor who started giving me more information about the difference between, you know, male energy, feminine energy, um, topics about infidelity, monogamy, which kind of started me more in researching in this direction. Neil had mentioned a couple of people that I had read and was listening to, like Helen Fisher was one of the people. And, you Mm. know, she has a really interesting take more on like the genetics of, of who we are, you know, down to like the DNA and our biology and how, you know, we are surviving here and, uh, you know, the whole instinctual mating thing. So I found his book really interesting in many different aspects because I really, as a therapist, enjoyed how much he shared about his therapy just on the inpatient level when he was in these treatment centers. I had a couple of good just personal laughs as being a therapist and, you know, reading what some of the therapists were saying to him and responding to him. And I also found it, you know, really educational, too, because uh, there was just some great stuff and some techniques that they did in therapy with him that some I wasn't familiar with and some I was. So I really enjoyed those aspects of it. Yeah. And for me, I am recently divorced and I've been in a, I was in a long-term monogamous relationship for 12 years. And before that I was in a long-term relationship uh, for four or five years. And so that take, that dates me all the way back to when I was 16. Um, so I'm 33 years old now and I've only been in long-term relationships and I've never dated. So I, there was a brief period where I was single and I didn't date at all. I only met, I only ended up meeting like one girl at a party and we made out and that was it. So, I mean, that was my extent. And the, my very first relationship was, well, it was monogamous, but it was, you know, first love high school sweetheart type relationship. And I was, you know, I had no experience. All I knew that I was in love with this girl and like, why don't you love me back as much? And I was totally like, you know, obsessed with her and she she didn't she didn't show me the same amount of love back but we stayed together forever you know it seemed like and we ended up breaking up and breaking off and breaking up breaking off she ended up cheating on me and I still wanted to stay with her because I loved her so much and you know I wanted to prove it to her and then she ended up breaking up with me when I was in college and that was that I'm like okay on to the next thing and then I end up uh you know brief going into the brief dating scenario for I mean actually I wasn't even dating I was just using the website hotternot.com back in 2003 and rating our rating our pictures right do you remember that website no I don't I've never heard of it <laughs> so you know it was a picture rating site so I mean this is like okay now it's like you've got tinder and tinder right hotternot actually still exists and it's kind of like a tinder clone you know in a way too but yeah you just rate people's pictures from one to ten so it's like Oh, this is way back before MySpace and social media. Um, so it was kind of cute. But then they ended up thinking if you matched the other person or they rated you and you rated them, you can, you ended up getting a chance to message each other. So that's how I ended up meeting my wife. Um, crazy. We hit it off immediately and we instantly started a long-term relationship. It was like there was no questioning about what monogamy is. Should we do this or should we not? What are different relationship styles? It was like you meet someone that you like, they like you back. You're in a relationship. You're the boyfriend and girlfriend. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I guess, you know, a little bit of my story, too. I've been married before as well, twice. And uh, my first marriage back when I was in my early 20s, unfortunately, ended due to infidelity on my husband's behalf. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is kind of a a personal subject in trying to understand. And in my 20s, I didn't get half of it, you know, or understanding it. I I made it all about had it been something wrong with me, the self-esteem. You know, you have all these questions and you know, feelings of betrayal. And we went through couples counseling. And then, you know, there was just this whole thing about trust. And I could really relate to um, Neil's wife now, who is now his wife, Ingrid, of just some of the struggles of going through that, you know, and what that feels like to be on the other end. Um, And one of the things that I really liked about his book is basically, it doesn't really matter. he, He says this a lot, it doesn't really matter what type of relationship that you're in, you have to get yourself straight first. And, you know, I think probably when I started dating in high school and through college, and then, you know, now having been married twice, I've had my fair share of dysfunctional relationships. And in many of them, I, you know, struggled with picking the right partner and, you know, what's healthy, what isn't healthy, even though I'm in the field of mental health and, you know, everybody thinks therapists just have it all together and they're perfect and they should know the right relationships to be in, you know, this and that. We're human too. Right. Um, but I've recently been single for almost three years now and I've been on a really deep journey of just trying to get myself straight and realizing, okay, you know, what is, what is going here? And I really want to make sure that I, am 100% in a healthier place than I've ever been before I get into any relationship with anyone else. So I've kind of been enjoying this journey. My journey has been a lot different than Neil's. I could tell you that I really haven't had the experience of um, experiencing anything that he writes about in this book, but reading it, it, I was kind of happy to read it to read his experiences. And I think you might have written this in your blog that you posted online on Facebook because I was thinking, let him go through the torture. Yeah. <laughs> and some of it sounded torturous, like even more constricting than a monogamous relationship and one-on-one yeah. with, you know, some of the polyamory that he was getting involved in. And I know we'll talk a little bit about that more, but I kind of felt, I felt his pain. I wanted it to like these relationships to stop for him in some ways. It just seemed like too much work. Yeah. And I, I it hit home for me too, because after um, my wife and I decided to divorce um, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, this is the whole issue of infidelity came up. And I was reading a book about called uh, Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel. And Neil actually mentions her in his book, which is kind of interesting. And this talked about like why that passion diminishes in the relationship over long term and why infidelity is actually so common. And we just got to talk about it and be honest about it. Why does it happen? It doesn't have to destroy the relationship. And it actually can reveal a lot about our partners if we allow it to be an avenue for personal growth and for healing and connection and intimacy. You can really understand some people through this. So that's how I looked at it. And and I start, when I started following my heart, the more I read about relationships and the more I started healing, I noticed myself falling, going down this path of polyamory. Like not not participating, but reading about it and like, oh my gosh, like started questioning monogamy in general, you know, I know that I don't want to get into a marriage, especially like right off the bat, now that I'm single, but like, you know, I've never dated before. And then now there's this whole idea of I can love more than one person. What is love? What does it feel like to, you know, do I want to, and what do I want out of a relationship? So it's cool. I, I read a lot of the books called opening up that Tristan Terramino wrote, which is a, you know, kind of a field guide to polyamory. And then also, the uh 
the other one, the ethical slut, which is a real famous one. Talked about sort of all the ins and outs of polyamory and the, the ethics and the, the struggles that people deal with. So I feel like the more we align with our truth, the more that we open ourselves and follow our hearts, the more ability we have to love other people. And it's less possessive and less controlling. But it brings up a lot of issues. So I don't know. It's cool to see Neil, like you said, go through this adventure personally and watch him do it. So I didn't have to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was just actually recently listening to something of Esther Perel's too. And she was giving a talk. It might have even have been a TED talk. But she said that she was asked the question at this conference, you know, what's the percentage? How many people are cheating? And she went into the whole litany of infidelity of how it it can range from porn to sexting to emotional relationships. Mm -hmm. that you know aren't physical to sexual ones and I remember her statistic the range was so big that it was 25 to 75 percent of people and (laughs) but you know at the towards the end of her talk it was very similar to what Neil was saying and that she said a lot of times people you know may look out there outside of the relationship but it has nothing to do necessarily with what the partner isn't giving them it has to do with how they've lost themselves and they're searching for a part of themselves somewhere else you know and I and I don't know after reading Neil's book and you know seeing where he came out at the end it kind of makes sense that I think it you know all fingers turn back to going back to you know who the person is as an individual have they healed a lot of their wounds and their skeletons in their closets and you know can they take that jump to look really deep in how they're interacting in love and attachment and relationships yeah, we saw Neil venture into, well, okay, let me just like spoiler alert here. So he ends up cheating on his uh, girlfriend and we well, ends up getting caught basically. And then he goes to sex addict rehab. He puts himself into it and to see maybe he can learn something. And, and through all that, he felt like, sure, it's he ended up coming out of it with like more disorders and and shame about himself than actual healing and he wanted to explore the end of the other end of the pendulum swing which is full all out all out freedom sexual freedom and so he decided to break up with ingrid who he actually loved but felt like he couldn't be with her without getting this out of his system so to speak so he ventured on into New Age Tantra orgies at Harbin Hot Springs, which is actually a, a retreat center out in California that I had actually looked at for Tantra workshops. It's actually burned down in the in the fires over there in California. But I, I, it was funny to actually recognize the name of the retreat center that he went in. I'm like, I've been looking to study there. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> um, and some of the teachers there, because I was I'm interested in Tantra and learning Tantric spirituality or Tantric sexuality and, and all that. But what he experienced was like this airy fairy hippie New Age orgy that was <laughs> probably not the best introduction to tantra let me tell you that but um and then he went on to experience swinging and that's you know if you don't know what swinging is it's just like couples tra- trade partners while the other one watches and supervise and it's a pretty safe form of polyamory it's more like uh just sexual pleasure for fun you know it's not necessarily about having multiple intimate relationships um so i think that's a safe entry for him but he still didn't find what he was looking for there um, then he ventured into like 
like uh, Vegas sex parties with like celebrities and stuff like that. And, and there was a lot of drugs there, ecstasy, Viagra. And, you know, it was pretty wild there. And it was like closer to his version of sexual freedom than the new age spirituality thing. Cause he said, there's no such thing. They weren't putting a spiritual cloak over it or a spiritual like cover over their fact that the people wanted to enjoy free sex. They were more like putting this hedonism, like, you know, pleasure and going all out and anything goes and, and the drugs were there as sort of a mask because some of these people don't quite feel right with themselves, but they take some ecstasy. They're allowed to explore that part of their sexuality, but he had an uncomfortable experience with that too. And it was quite funny watching him go through it. He's like, here I am in this middle of this orgy. And yet I'm worried about what this person thinks. I'm worried about their pleasure. I'm, it's awkward and I'm, you know, and he ended up having a bad experience and, and getting out of it, just like he had in the New Age Tantra one. <laughs> then where did he go from there? I forget. Oh, my God. This book was so long. I don't I could, <laughs> I, I could I think you're doing a great job of actually following the timeline of everything that he went into. Um, well, and then there was like um, who was Sage? There was Sage. And when he oh, when he brought the women into his own house, he decided uh, yes. to, you know, pick three women that he had uh, relationships with throughout his adventures and then wanted to kind of create his own little home and his own little world uh, to see if that would work. And that was a complete disaster as well. Yeah. Because everyone was getting jealous. There were rules. I mean, he, you know, his humor is pretty funny about, you know, he would give some excerpts and say, you know, it's basically time to get into the car again. And yes, we're fighting over who's going to sit in the front seat. Um, But, you know, yeah, that, that was kind of interesting too. Just, I, it almost felt like to me, I was reading yet watching a reality TV show, like MTV, the real world or something, just just Mm -hmm. the way that he described it and seeing how all of these different personalities were playing out and the emotional connections that they were making and the one lady and that just really couldn't take it and was having a really hard time with it and eventually wanted to leave and yeah, and she moved from australia was it yes all the way to san francisco where neil rented his house and he was he was trying to build like this father yod fantasy so if there's a documentary called the source family i think you can find it on netflix where this it's a you know, this hippie lifestyle where this one guy had like 12 wives and everyone kind of worshipped him and they lived in this giant community. And he was like, man, how does this guy do it? This was like his, his like, you know, Jesus like <laughs> figure him. This is what he wanted to create this fantasy. And so he was, he found three other women that were interested in living together in a, in a four person relationship with Neil at the center. The women didn't get to choose each other. They kind of got, you know, the luck of the draw here. They got, they had a try to find a way to make friends with each other so they ended up meeting each other and one of them was like super wild i forget what her name was was that wasn't sage was it veronica veronica she was like super Mm -hmm. wild and like flirty and sexy uh Anne was like from australia i think or russia i don't remember and she was like more she had an experience with neil at one of these like sex parties or whatever and then ended up like feeling more possessive over him and wanting him all to herself and didn't like the other girls and was feeling really jealous all the time. And then the other one, Sage, was more like, can you describe her? What was what was her personality like? Well, Sage was the one that he ended up with quite later on, right? I get that, you know, there are, the funny thing is there's so many women in this book. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think, because more towards the end, and here's another spoiler, there was the one, one woman that he really felt that 
he could be in this relationship with. And then instead of like keeping her kind of held captive, like he did to Ingrid, he would allow her to also be free within the relationship. And he had a really hard time with that because she began exploring. So I, I can't remember if, if that was her in that house or if it was an experience that he had had with her that he had met her at a party. I think that's what it was. He had met Sage at a, at a party, yeah. the one where he got completely fucked up and was on the ecstasy and oh, yeah. had he's, that he's experience. Oh, yeah, he's passed out and he still yeah. has a heart on. And she, and she <laughs> left. I mean, she was pissed off and, you know, he hadn't really heard from her after that, but then they ended up getting back together and it was a pretty good relationship for the most part. And then he kind of, all of his insecurities came up when she wanted to be have a little more freedom in the relationship yeah, that's right. And it was it was just quite interesting how he wanted all this freedom, but then when it came time to for him to give freedom for his partners, he couldn't handle it. And of course, you know, this is like just polyamory one on one on one essentially. Like these are you're gonna get jealous. You're gonna have to face all of your insecurities and it doesn't just go away with multiple partners. Like every all the baggage you bring in with into your relationship with one partner, you bring it in with all with every partner. And and that was what hit the interesting takeaway from his his experience with the three other women was it was crazy managing them. He felt more like he was the dad of three kids in a way. Like who's gonna sit in the front seat? And you know, if I spend time with Anne, then I'm not spending time with the other two, and I have to dole out my time fairly. And they're getting jealous and they need to work it out between themselves. I mean, it was it was such a good example of what a, a, a beginner polyamory polyamorous relationship looks like. Yeah. And, and the funny part, but maybe not so funny, is that here he is, you know, wanting this fantasy. He's creating this fantasy to happen. And because there's so much tension in the house, he's sleeping on the couch. He's yeah. not sleeping with any of them, you know. Yeah. He had to sleep on the couch by himself all the nights and he just he, he couldn't stand it. And he ended up... Uh, I think the other two girls wanted to kick Anne out and she ended up leaving or whatever. I don't know. This The whole thing dissolved and he ended up moving on to the next thing. And um, that also didn't work out. And then he's like, you know what? He went on a trip to Machu Picchu that was supposed to go on with Ingrid. And he finds himself missing her and thinking about her the whole time. Like, man, what did, why did I give her up? You know, she I can't believe she loved me. And I'm just such a jackass, you know. And he you know, it took him a while to realize that he really missed her. And... He ended up getting back together with her, but it wasn't all, you know, as easy as it sounds. Do you remember what, how that happened at the end? You just finished the book, so maybe you have a better memory. Yeah. Um, well, well, do you want me to give, like, it all away? Or? Yeah, give it, give it all away. I mean, this <laughs> okay, is... Okay, give it all away. Spoiler um, alert, if you don't want to hear how it ends, don't read my blog post and don't listen to this part of the podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, the big, the big part of it was he ended up getting this invitation from who he thought was Ingrid for a wedding. And he thought for sure that she had moved on because she was dating some like really handsome guy that he had heard about or saw. And it took him a while to open up this wedding invitation. And, you know, sure enough, it was for her brother. And that's where they kind of reconnected. And remember he put together like this beautiful little gift to show her like how he had changed where you know, he changed his phone number, he locked all the passwords to his old accounts and basically came off the grid of, of the internet and social media and, and the telephone. And, you know, I think their connection was still there. So she gave him another chance. And they both, what I really liked is when they got together towards the end of the book, they really created a very nice ceremony in yeah. how 
they were going to pretty much bury the past in a way or, or grieve the past, recognize it as their past. But, you know, she also got certain things together that they were putting in a box to represent like the elephant in the room, um, the different hands that they put in this box. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just to basically symbolize. And the, the uh, I think the other thing was like bird cages, because one of the things that she had said was about originally letting him go and have this type of lifestyle. She gave the example of the metaphor of a caged bird, you know, like we cage, we cage birds to observe their beauty and stuff like that. But if you were to open up the cage and let it go, the thing is, is that birds don't survive in the wild. And that was something that really struck, struck him. I think he mentioned it quite a few times. And that was another thing that she had gotten to symbolize kind of the freedom and the cage bird thing. And they put this all in a box. I think they ended up burying it like in their backyard or something, but it was a way for them. The way that I look at it is really to create a brand new contract within their relationship of how are we going to move forward? And, you know, couples, a lot of times, really don't have the ability to move forward. They'll keep bringing up the past or the trust issues. And, you know, it somehow will always revert back to like the contract they originally had when they first got together. But, you know, once infidelity happens or once there's betrayal or lack of trust or there's a, a trauma or an incident and then you're trying to rebuild that, you can't go back to the original contract. You know, you really have mm -hmm. to rebuild, rewrite it. What is this going to be like? And are we as two people really willing to, you know, let that go? I think it's pretty, pretty admirable of, of Ingrid. And, and, you know, I was kind of thinking of her and like, wow, did she read this book? And how hard could that have been to actually read all of these experiences that he did have and to not feel that twinge of jealousy or to have her ego react or to relive more trauma, you know, and then mm -hmm. to, to be with him. So um, it's yeah. pretty intense. Sometimes. Yeah, either she really did feel it and dealt with it in a mature way or she was so needy for neil that she just said whatever i want you so badly yeah she does feel the jealousy but they're mature enough and they're going to get through it you know she recognizes neil's true authentic self and his heart and where it's at and and understands that this is going to be a challenging relationship but they really both love each other so he realized that happiness comes from within and true freedom is not having a, a bunch of partners a text message away but feeling free to be your true self in the world, you know, to be more authentic, to be real with your partner rather than perfect with your partner. And that he can go a lot deeper into love with a one person than he could spreading it out through three people. That's what he realized, that they have to nurture the three entities in the relationship, which is him, Ingrid, and the relationship itself. So they both care about each other's personal fulfillment and happiness and it's not just about this codependent relationship so to speak yeah i would agree with that too and um the other thing that he had mentioned in a joking way was you know as he's doing his own inner work in his therapy he said well hey we have to admit it she's got issues too she picked me exactly <laughs> and, yeah you know he would relate it back to some of her i think it was some abandonment issues you know through her father and uh, if you don't mind i kind of wanted to go a little bit on a tangent about that because yeah let's do it y you know reading 
reading about his journey through the healing process. And, you know, a lot of people hate this to say, oh, come on, does it really go back to my mom? Does it really go back to my dad? You know, and what they find is that the human brain from zero to seven years old, you know, all that it does is it records data, records information. So it's it's a really significant time in our development, I think, as a human to go back and, and question that, you know, now as we're learning that and what how the brain stores memory and how we, you know, develop these unconscious habit patterns that later as adults we're trying to unravel and, and figure out and create new, better, healthier habit patterns. Um, but, you know, when you think about what was your first, what was your experience like in learning what love was, what marriage was, what a relationship with your mother was, or, you know, your first female uh, I guess, role model, you could say, and your first male role model as your dad, and what did your life look like zero to seven? And then he goes in to share a little bit more in depth about his relationship with his mom. And while, while he was in therapy, he basically was told by some of the therapists that what was actually happening between him and his mom was more emotional incest. And, you know, so that's where he also brings up that Ingrid had her work to do, and he also pointed out what he thought after he had gone through his therapy, what some of the issues were with some of the other women like Anne and Anne had some issues as well. And, um, I wanted to just read a little portion that he has in here and it's more like therapy based related, mm -hmm. but he also is talking about or making people reflect on the type of functional parenting that either you had or didn't have and what the consequences are to the parenting that you received as a child. And in turn, how does that connect to your love attachments and your love relationships? Yeah. So, you know, in his book, he had said that there's three ways of raising children. There's the functional bonding in which the parents or primary caregivers love, nurture, affirm, set healthy limits, and take care of the needs of the child. And... Of course, that's the best case scenario, right? This creates a child who has healthy, secure self-esteem and relationships. And then the next example he goes on to give, but then there's neglect. When a caregiver abandons, is detached from, or doesn't appropriately nurture the child, this can range from a parent who isn't physically present to a parent who is physically present but emotionally distant to a parent who doesn't provide adequate care or safety, to a parent lost in work, sex, gambling, alcohol, or other addiction. And if you grew up feeling unwanted by or unimportant by a parent, this is a sign that neglect likely occurred. And he said, in turn, what does that create as a child and then later an adult, but the wounded child? And they can oftentimes be depressed and decisive, see themselves as flawed and less valuable than others, and could feel like they're facing the world alone. And in relationships, they tend to have what's called more of an anxious attachment, feel like maybe they're not enough for their partners. They become so wrapped up in the relationship that they lose sight of their own needs and self-worth. They can be very emotionally intense passive-aggressive, or in need of constant reassurance that they're not going to be abandoned. And he refers to this as the type of person who is a love addict. And then yeah. his example was, you know, the third type, which is more of what his mother fell into, which is the enmeshing parent who tries to get his or her own needs met through the child. And this can take various forms where a parent who lives through a child's accomplishments, who makes the child a surrogate spouse, which in his case is what his mom did, um, can make the child a surrogate spouse, therapist, or caretaker. Uh, the parent who is depressed and emotionally uses the child, it can, they can also be overbearing and controlling, or 
they are excessively emotional or anxious about the child. And if you grew up feeling sorry for or smothered by a parent, this is a sign that enmeshment likely occurred. So, you know, he goes on to, I'm just going to give a little bit more because this is mm -hmm. really his, his nook and his part of the book and what he later finds out, he starts applying to his relationships and, and realizing that he, he really had the enmeshed parent. And he said, the enmeshed children lose their sense of self. As adults, they usually avoid letting anyone get too close and suck the light out of, life out of them again, whereas the abandoned are often unable to contain their feelings. But the enmeshed tends to be cut off from them and be perfectionistic and controlling of the, themselves and others. And though they may pursue a relationship thinking they want connection, once they're in reality of one, they often put up walls and feel superior and use other distancing techniques to avoid intimacy. And this is known as avoidant attachment or love avoidance. So I wanted to kind of read that for your listeners because I am sure everyone can figure out which of those three categories they grew up in. They either had really functioning, well parents and you know, came out of it with great self-esteem and loving themselves and have had healthy relationships or there was neglect or there was enmeshment. And I thought as a therapist, that was a great way to, you know, kind of sum three different categories up of, you know, you know what people go through. Yeah. And that's, uh, that mirrors exactly the stuff I'm reading about in the book attached, uh, that I mm -hmm. mentioned to you earlier. It was the whole, you've got anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, or secure attachment. So yeah, the three different ways. And the problem, the thing that I feel is, I always, I often feel like, yeah, with that person, I have anxious attachment. With these people, I've got avoidant attachment, but I think I'm secure. You know, I think that we all have a mixture somehow of them, but I love how he puts it in that way, because I think you can really see yourself. Do you have any, yeah, what else do you think about that? Um, well, I just thought it was... I found it really fascinating the way that he dissected his whole relationship with his mom mm -hmm. and his father and how he really kind of became that surrogate spouse for his mom and the way that she would punish him. And for months on end, like the, the consequences to his behavior were so extreme that he basically didn't have a life in high school. And, you know, and then, you know, anytime he had a girlfriend or wanted to bring a girlfriend around, like the mother would never be accepting of that. And, um, you know, really bashing his self-esteem, not allowing him to have keys to the house because he would lose it. And, you know, Ingrid would do a lot of these sweet things where when he went off on his exploration, she said, I'm giving you a plant just to prove that you can take care of something in your life. And, you know, because his mother would say that he wasn't worthy and could never take care of anything. And, you know, everything was a disaster that he if anybody gave him anything to put trust in him that he just basically would fail at everything. So, mm. you know, I, I love that part just because it's more psychoanalytical and, you know, loved how he brought insight into that and was taking a look at how he was recreating some of that avoidant attachment in his love relationships. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is really good. I love where this is going. I think, okay. So I've got a question for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Neil talks about how we turn our relationships or every relationship that we have, if we haven't healed those childhood wounds, they sort of recycle those wounds back into our adult relationships. So you end up parentalizing your spouse or your partner, for example, and turning them into your mother or turning them into your father unconsciously. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah. I mean, I see it. 
I, I think it's all true. I, and <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I don't know if it's just because I'm in this field and it's just part of my belief system or what I see, or maybe it's just something that really makes sense when you put two and two together. But, you know, when I am looking at people, if I look at my own life and see how that has played out, I see it playing out all the time. And, and that's where, again, it kind of almost feels like annoying, but, you know, did our parents really fuck us up? And, well, it's not that they did it intentionally or whatever the case may be, but yes, I still think that it comes, you know, back to, um, you know, what we were exposed to in our childhood and, and what love looked like at that point. I think, you know, I would fall more under the category of um, the second one, uh, not the enmeshed, but more of the abandoned child, mm-hmm. uh, the, the wounded ch- child, you know, my, my parents separated at a very early age, I think I was one. So my dad was, you know, non existent as a father, we still kept in touch and had a relationship, but it was more of an absent father. And my mom struggled with addiction all of her life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she wasn't there emotionally for me, and she was struggling with her own mental illness. And I have found in some of my relationships that I probably become that over anxious person that fears that abandonment and, you know, searching or looking for that love and in some of my partners that I didn't find and that I would stay loyal and stay in relationships that probably weren't healthy. But the thought of abandoning them or leaving them or them leaving me just was too painful to bear. And, you know, my upbringing was pretty chaotic. Um, So I know what chaos is and I know that energy and I can survive that. So sometimes I would find myself in pretty chaotic, dysfunctional relationships with men. But I knew that because I lived a very dysfunctional relationship with my mom. So, hey, I got this. I have the school, the skills to survive this. I know how to maneuver this. This is love, right? That, that's what I thought love was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I've kind of gone through relationships and healing and learning and learning more and then learning more and doing self-discovery and psychoanalyzing myself and, you know, my own story and how the impact of my parents have, you know, impacted me, I think I've slowly have seen I've gotten into better and healthier relationships time and time again, but there's, there's still work to be done there. Yeah. You know, our relationships bring out so much of our insecurities and fears. And it's like, well, we do feel the love that we're looking for or hopefully, but it also brings up a lot of our wounds and stuff like that too. And in my case, I can't tell if I'm anxious or avoidant, you know, because I, or I think I'm secure, but then I sometimes have tendencies to be anxiously attached or avoidantly attached. So just to give some examples. So like, okay, I've had two long-term relationships, very loyal person, you know, I've put up with a lot of stuff and, and I feel like I can hang, I can hang with a lot of chaos, you know, so I relate with what you're saying too. And so, well, okay, that means I'm not really an avoidant person because I can, I can be intimate and, and really connect. I think the avoidant uh, attachment person fears intimacy as a loss of their freedom and independence and the anxious fears abandonment. So they, they really need all this reassurance that their lover is going to stay and, and they, they, that they're, that they are loved and all that. So with, with different people, I experience different situations. And right now that I'm dating, I have noticed that those tendencies come up, both of them in different situations. So some people it's like, I'm all into them, but then all of a sudden I start to notice that they're getting, that they start to feel close and something will trigger within me that like, oh no, you know what? I still want to date and I still, I don't want them to feel like that I'm choosing them to be like my partner. So then I'll get like kind of scared and I'll have, I'll do what the, I'll do the avoidant sort of behavior, which is like, 
dial myself back and watch what I say because I don't want to appear too committed, you know. But then with other people, I feel like I'm wondering what they're thinking all the time. I just I, I'll text them and I hope they text me back, you know. If they wait long enough, I'll do the anxious thing where I'm just like, well, I'm not going to try to be too needy. I'm not going to try to be look, try to look desperate. So I find myself going back and forth and as like a personal growth kind of guy now, I'm, I'm just like observing all of this behavior within myself and thinking, wow, how interesting is all of this, you know, and, and what is this saying about me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I recently read an article um, about the love avoidant and the love addicted type of personalities coming together and what a recipe for disaster to happen. You know, it almost yep. seems like it'd be better if you had two love addicts together because then they're loving each other so much. Don't abandon me. Don't leave me. Stay with me. You know, I'll do whatever <laughs> I can. Then if you had two love avoidance, you know, they're each getting their freedom, their personal time. They're not too attached. But when you put the love addict and the, the love avoidant together, it's just, I think, very high drama a lot of chaos and mm -hmm. a lot of heartbreak and those are probably you know relationships where they're together they're breaking up they're together again they're breaking up it's like the cycle just never ends yeah and i feel like those are really common because it's almost like the codependent narcissist relationship you know if you've, you've gone into that rabbit hole a little bit where mm -hmm. you've got the codependent person who wants to who wants to feel needed and helpful and then you've got the narcissist who you know, has all these issues and then will totally attract a person who tries to help them, you know, and then that they like want to be admired and respected and chased after. And the, the anxiously attached person or the codependent really wants to, to fix someone and, 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 uh, bring, you know, tie someone down to keep them, you know, and they, they go through that back and forth, you know, and I think that polarity is what's really attractive. So they'll like, they'll feel so much passion and sparks will be flying and it'll be like love at first sight. And they'll think this is really love. But what it, I think what it really is, is they have a wound or a hole in their soul or in their psyche, their personality. And then they see they're attracted to a, a person that's about the, that could fill that hole. And so it's like a lost part of themselves. So it's like, Hey, there it is. There it is. And then they, it's like, you can't really explain attraction that much, or you can't decide who you're attracted to in a, in, a, in like a conscious way. But subconsciously, like the codependent or the anxiously attached person will be attracted to avoidance or narcissists until they, you know, use it as a way to become more whole of themselves. Do you right. know what I mean? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you want to switch gears or not, but another thing that I kind of found interesting and wanted more of like the male perspective is, you know, as Neil's kind of going through some of his therapy, and I have to say that there were parts of the, his experience in inpatient treatment through therapy with that one therapist, Joan, yeah. that was horrifying. And it really made me think of some of the work that Brene Brown does on shame and vulnerability. Mm. And there was a lot of shaming that sounded like was happening in that type of therapy there from that one therapist. And it was horrible to just see like where these, you know, these men were almost shamed for having a sex drive or a very high libido yeah. or, you know, looking at porn. And, you know, he kind of makes good points every now and then. It's like, what is normal? What is normal for the male species? I mean, the way that he kind of in the earlier part of the book describes men is that, you know, they're very 
they're physically driven, you know, appearance when he was talking about, he was, you know, sitting on the plane and just all of these sexual things that he was noticing about a woman. And as I'm reading this, there was a part of me and I was thinking, oh my God, is this what men are really thinking about? I was just on a plane to Colorado. Like, were these, were these men like this on the plane? Is this what they're really looking at? Are they really checking us out in this way? I mean, <laughs> there were just like some things of it, some yep. parts of this book as a woman reading it that there was definitely a part of me that felt a little disgusted, a little violated kind of questioning, like, is, do men, do all men really think like this? And if they do, we, God, if we could hear men's thoughts, it's almost like we're being violated and raped in some ways without even knowing it, you know, and him, him kind of talking about, Oh yeah, I know that guy's keeping that picture in his head basically for a spank bank, you know, to masturbate later. And I'm like, yep. no, no, what? Really? So I don't know. From like a woman's point of view, there was some of it that was a little shocking. And maybe that's me just being a little naive or I'm starting to learn even more about, you know, men. Mm -hmm. But he brings up a good point too of like, what is normal male sexual behavior? And, you know, and women, I think from the woman's point of view, we're also shamed to basically keep it secret you know if if women are sexual and if they have multiple partners well they're sluts you know but for men all right high five way to go buddy you know another notch in your belt so but i also think too and i'm sure that there's women there's obviously you know women sex addicts as well it's like who do you think these men are sleeping with too you know it's like women do have sex people we do like sex we enjoy it um you know but mm -hmm. we're kind of shamed to be quiet about it but then, you know, he brings, getting back to my point, is that, you know, well, what is normal use of porn and how often should you look at it? And, you know, what about masturbation? And, you know, should he be thinking about and sexualizing these women with his thoughts? And in the sex addiction therapy, you know, like they basically cut everything out, like no masturbating, no uh, being exposed to porn or calling ex-girlfriends or this or that. It was almost like any other addiction. You had to remove the substance that was creating the cravings and yeah. the behavior. But And I don't have the answers to this even as a therapist. Like what what is normal? What's too much? What's you know, what's not enough, what's under-sexualized. Um, I mean, and obviously we can go with the typical definition of addiction and, you know, put it in that frame of, of trying to give it some structure. But at the same time, it's like, who's making all these rules about it too? So that's no, just some of my thoughts as a female. <laughs> no, that's amazing. April, thank you so much for sharing all that. That's really, really good. I think this topic of shaming, of just shame in general around sexuality male and female is hugely important right now i, f I feel like it, it is for me i've been coming to terms with owning my own sexuality i mean for for the longest time i've dialed myself down i've turned off my sex drive so, so to speak because it was intimidating and you know it's it's like it's we're in a culture right now where men are being sort of feminized and sort of it's weird because there is sure there is a celebration of the the male libido you know another notch in your belt but at the same time there's the feminist movement that's kind of criticizing that and wanting their own sexual empowerment because you were also right where you know women are shamed to, try to keep their sexuality secret and so there's the whole virgin uh horror concept as well like you know women are supposed to be pure and and to to only give their sexuality away, quote unquote, to like the right person. And, and it's got to be kept private. But then on the outside, they they're not supposed to be openly sexual unless they or they'll be called a slut. So and then now you see the, like the, the reclaiming of the word slut with the whole slut parades and the, hmm, you know, yeah. and, and that movement, too. So it's like they're coming out and saying that, like, you know, I am a sexual person and I do like sex and and I'm not going to be ashamed about that. And then so I'm seeing the flip side for as a man 
to say that I enjoy sex, I feel sh- ashamed because that's like saying I'm a sex addict. You know, there's this whole like thing out there too where I want, I'm I'm careful to tread lightly on on what a woman thinks because I don't want to be I don't want to appear to be too intimidating or to be you know there's this whole thing about consent and and you know you must ask for a hug first or something like that i mean if you get crazy reading the feminist uh, literature out there too and the whole anti-porn crusade which i've gone i flip-flopped back and forth on being anti-porn being pro-porn being in the middle trying to figure out what is true for me and so this whole topic is exceptionally interesting to me um yeah, I don't exactly know where to go, but I'll be happy to answer any of your <laughs> questions from the male perspective. So, yeah, what, are you, what are you curious about? I'll be, I'll, I'll try to be as transparent <laughs> as I can be. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. You know, I just kind of wanted to. It was more of a thought, really, than a question to just kind of share how you know some of it as a woman reading this book kind of impacted, and you know sometimes it can be a little shocking, you know, because obviously we're women, we're not in a man's mind, and you know women can joke about it, and you know the difference between men and women, and the whole you know men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and I think that there's a lot of good stuff in that, and you know I recently watched a really funny thing on YouTube about this guy basically describing the difference between the male brain and the female brain and how, you know, females are brains when they put them in brain imaging things, they could see that when women begin to think that everything is interconnected for us, you know, it's like, you know, the love turns to the job, turns to what I'm going to wear, to this and that, and, you know, everything's connected, whereas, you know, they see in these brain scans that men really have more of a construct to put things in boxes. So the man was saying, like, you know, men, we have a box for sports, we have a box for sex, we have a box for food, we have a box for relationships, mm-hmm. we have a box for family. And, you know, for the difference between men and women is that sometimes men can just put things in boxes, you know, where sometimes we can, you know, women could be called too emotional, or, you know, they have to always try to dissect things or figure things out. But, you know, I mean, the sexes, we are different. Absolutely. Um, Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the other thing, just kind of like going back to porn, I know we're kind of, you know, bouncing back and forth here, but the other thing that I found, you know, kind of fascinating because I've been having more men in my practice coming in for porn addiction or, you know, what's kind of happening is they're watching it on their laptops or on their phones and their wife, wives are stumbling upon it. And, you know, all of a sudden they're seeing this alternative lifestyle that they are believing that their husband is having and they didn't even know the depths of the porn that they were watching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're kind of sent to therapy, shamed, like bad boy. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. you've been cheating on me with porn. And the whole porn addiction thing I find very fascinating too when they're studying the brain and how it's hitting the dopamine dopamine receptors and how the chemistry of the brain with men that are I guess overusing porn or watching it more that the dopamine receptors are being depleted it really is changing the brain um, in many ways but when they Mm. were trying to do an experiment to find a control group to measure the the different types of activities in a male brain that had no exposure to porn and then men who were exposed to porn, they couldn't do the study. There was no control group. They could not find and interview a man that had never watched porn. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's fascinating to me. I mean, you know, but... Unless they go to a tribal... uh, (laughs) Right? Or somewhere where there's no TV and there's no internet. Yeah, but I think it was a, a study done in the States. So I don't know. You know, that's a whole... Another thing that in some ways in therapy, yeah, I I guess you can treat that as an addiction because there are some real 
things that are happening with the brain and different, um, you know, chemicals that are being released just as they would during sex or, you know, at the start of a new relationship and some of the receptors in the brain that, that start to light off, you know, during porn are the same that go off when you're snorting cocaine, you know, it's kind of Mm -hmm. that same high. So, yeah, this is, this is really a touchy subject, I guess, where it's like the whole calling something an addiction. And I think by labeling that someone has an addiction on it immediately implies that they're bad, they need to get help, and they need to fix it because they're broken or they're wrong. It's such, okay, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I've watched all the Your Brain on Porn videos. And and I'm like, okay, so it is like the high intensity of, you know, cocaine, and it stimulates all the right brain receptors and all this kind of stuff. But like, let's get to like the the root of like why a man is like preferring porn over his partner and all of this other kind of stuff. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. I think that that's a whole subject for a different podcast probably. (laughs) But when you talk about these guys are coming into you and they're like basically being shamed into therapy by their wives or their partners saying, bad boy, you've looked at porn. I think it's a perfect opportunity to kind of start to understand and relate to your husband or your partner in a new way, to your man in a new way. And likewise, with like the female sexuality, start to understand her sexuality. Like she's she's ashamed to bring it out in public. We're both ashamed to bring it out in public. We live in a culture that's like hypersexualized, but no one's really allowed to talk about sex, like on a mature level. We can joke about sex. We can talk about it and like... And make jokes about it and make fun of people and kind of have some slang about it. But if you want to get down to the nitty gritty and actually talk about serious subjects like porn addiction and female sexuality, then this is where things get a little little scary for people. Yeah, and I mean that kind of brings it right about right around back to towards the end of Neil's book with basically, you know, how with him and Ingrid coming back together, how are they making this work? And they're basically it's like this brutal truth, open honesty approach and really being the way that he describes it just seems like that they're on a different level level of truth and communication that not a lot of couples can find or get to that. That's kind of like a, a very general statement. I'm sure that there are many couples in this world that are where Neil and Ingrid are, and they probably didn't have to get through the whole story of where Neil and Ingrid did, you know, but I would say there's a, a good handful of relationships out there that people haven't even really explored the depth of being truth, truthful and honest. I mean, in my experience with people coming in, I mean, a lot of people, number one, aren't talking about this live on a podcast. You know? <laughs> number two, they're not sitting down with their husbands or with their wives and being honest and saying, I'm starting to have feelings for somebody. There's this person at work or, you know, I've met this person. We exchange numbers. You know, we've gone to coffee. But now somehow, some way, our texting has become a little bit sexual and I wanted to talk to you about this. Yeah. You know, people are coming into therapy to speak about it where they know that there are laws and rules that protect their confidentiality. <laughs> but they're talking to the wrong person. You know, they need yeah. to... And, and and this is, I think, the downfall a lot in in marriages and relationships. It's almost like, you know, the feelings are there or the temptation is there or somebody else comes in and all of a sudden this other person is making us feel wonderful and love and appreciated and sexy and attractive. And all of a sudden it's like this crazy beast that just keeps getting fed and it can spiral out of control so quickly and so fast now in this day and age with texting, Snapchatting, yep. WhatsApp. I mean, there are, it is so easy, so easy to cheat. Um, it's so easy to have, 
secret relationships with the technology that we have out there. And it's easy to keep it quiet. But, you know, do people have enough courage when stuff like this starts to happen to actually sit down and have a conversation with their partner about it? And what are we going to do about it? And I'm coming to you because I don't want to enter into another relationship or I'm feeling like I might. And what should we do about that? Or, you know, do we go into an open relationship and explore this? Or can you give me some time so I can figure this out? But by the time people are talking, they're either have, they either have gotten caught or the other person is just ready to leave because whatever it is that they have found feels and appears to be so much better than what they're in. Oh, man. Yeah, that's so that's so awesome. And I love how the foundation, I think, going forward really needs to be honesty and truth with yourself and with your partner. And it's so much it's it's scary to know that your partner probably is attracted to other people. <laughs> and just like as much as you are, like, you know, if you're sitting on a plane and you notice like that the woman next to you's got a short skirt or something like that, it's like an, an an unconscious reaction to notice it and to feel some sort of sexual arousal, whether or not you act upon it or or anything. It doesn't none of that matters. But what happens is it's like it's instinctual. It's like you, you it just happens. So but the, I love that you said people come to the therapist and they tell you about it, but they don't tell their partner. It's like the people need to talk to each other a lot more but what's we're so used to this adversarial relationship where it's like you you have to be a good wife or a good husband or a good boyfriend or girlfriend rather than being true to yourself and being real it's like some people ha have this little bit of an air that they put on or for like they have to be, the man has to be on his best behavior so to speak and if he gets caught doing something quote unquote bad then he's got to go get therapy go to help and get rehab or you know, he's got to quit doing whatever he's doing so he can be a better boyfriend or husband. And the, the Alison Armstrong, one of my favorite relationship experts, she talks about that women love to think that men are just hairy women and that all of their bad, all their bad behavior is just, they're just misbehaving, that they just need to be told how to do it right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then they'll eventually get it and then change their ways. What the, but what she, what she proposes is, an honoring of the man, an honoring of the masculine, and then the man has to honor the feminine and honor everything about that that woman. And to get to that place, you have to, you know, you got to like to honor that within yourself and to be able to build a trust in your, you know, in your and trust and love for yourself so you can get to the point where you can trust and love another person for being who they really are. So that it, we, we have to confront our shames and everything that we're ashamed about and the things that we're scared to admit to somebody else, that's how you create real intimacy is by admitting those things that you think you're going to be judged for and then allowing that to release and get into the topic of conversation and then find that your spouse or partner accepts you for that. And now you now you have evolved to another level of intimacy. You've gone a step deeper. And that's what Ingrid and Neil are, are hoping to do in their relationship. Right. And not only just being judged by your partner or having to face whatever shame or guilt that you're having there, but also, and this can bring us into a whole other topic, but, <laughs> you know, also what society thinks. I mean, look at the, look at the rules that we have about relationships that govern human behavior right now. You know, there's kind of these norms and these morals, and this is how you're supposed to react, and it is supposed to be monogamy, and we're not supposed to cheat, and you shouldn't have feelings for another person. And by golly, if you're in your relationship, then, you know, you shouldn't have any sexual feelings towards any of the opposite sex or same sex, you know, whoever it is that you prefer that you're attracted to, because that should just be cut off or something, yeah. you know. So not only, you know, if something is going on within our relationships, if we really wanted to try to have this brutal truth and honesty with our partner, 
there. But then there's like all of these layers of, but do I tell my best friend? Do I tell my friend? Can I confide in my coworker about this without somebody actually judging you or shaming you or giving you their idea of what the rules would be and what you should or shouldn't do? And, you know, and then again, like you had said, we're not really talking about sex or intimacy or relationships because there's so much judgment. And then if somebody tells somebody and that gets off to somebody else, and now all of a sudden, you know, people are talking about the situation and there's tons of judgment. If it's not, you know, if you're, if people are finding out maybe who are very set in certain morals or beliefs and, and then, yeah, so who wouldn't want to avoid any of this? That's probably why people do want to come to therapy and talk yeah. about it confidentially because there's no judgment and they can be who they are and think who, you know, think the way that they need to think and express their feelings without some of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're talking about society and their rules and their morals as if like there's a right way to be and then a wrong way to be. You know, we all know that there's a huge spectrum of how to how to be in this world, you know, and some people subscribe that to a religion or a certain kind of code of conduct that's outside of themselves that they maybe they resonate with or they think that that is the truth so then they must obey that truth rather than listening to their hearts and what their needs the the reality of themselves actually is you know what their authenticity is and so the more I'm the more I um, explore this I feel like we're headed in a direction where your heart and your own authenticity is your guiding light so to speak and not what society thinks and not what other people's rules are and not what is, quote, normal. It's more like what's true for you and who you really are. And if like if you see one person embracing their truth and being who they are, it gives you permission to do that for yourself. The more you see other people doing that, being true to themselves, you feel you can be true to yourself. And then you find you'll attract people that respect your truth, respect who you really are, rather than the image that you project out there, the mask that you bring out into the world. So the more we can open up about our shames, then I think it's a perfect catalyst to create a more authentic version of yourself and to attract a more authentic, loving partner who's, who's you know, anytime I've opened up about my shames and felt accepted. And once we got past that level, it's like I brought new, it was like I just leveled up somehow. I just like, now I'm attracting people into my life that I never would have attracted. So it's, it's interesting. Like if you feel that shame inside about something, you're going to manifest in your physical reality. If you want to get a little esoteric here, you'll manifest proof of that shame in your physical reality. Well, people will judge you. So it's like, like attracts like, if you feel judged, you judge yourself as bad as shameful. You will find people in your reality that will shame you and judge you until you feel like you've owned it and you and no longer judge yourself and you can love yourself for that and come out sort of publicly, bring it out consciously you attract people that will love that about you because they reflect it back to you. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. That was Oh, thanks, April. Yeah. yeah. I, man, there's so much I think we can talk about together. So I, I want to bring you on the show, you know, a few more times at least, and we can t dial into porn addiction. We can dial into well, – I don't even want to say porn addiction. Just, just call it porn, right? And um, <laughs> we'll talk about that. I think we can talk about infidelity and cheating. I think another thing is talking about female sexuality. I think I sent you that link to the to Kim Anami who talks about the well fucked woman. Oh yeah, super, yep, that super was great. bold the way that she talks about female sexuality, and you know she says like woman deserves to have one multiple orgasms every day, you know, to feel right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and it's like and then men need to step up to the plate and and honor that in a woman, you know, rather than being intimidated or scared because. So men will, will like lust after these women in porn, but, and then, 
But then it's like they get involved in a relationship where a woman is sexually voracious and has this huge appetite or high sex drive. They want to contain it and to own it and possess it like it's a wild animal and they want to domesticate it, basically. And it's only for them, you know. But if that woman's literally got a high sex drive and is voracious, she's not just sexually attracted to you, you know. She's she's an empowered woman herself. So it's scary. And I think that's why a lot of women are shamed into keeping it a secret is because empowered female sexuality is terrifying. It's it's incredibly powerful on a spiritual level. And I think between uh, a mature man and a mature woman, it, it creates ecstatic states of transcendent love and bliss and ecstasy. And it's powerful. It's that light, creative life force of all of the universe. And I think you get a chance to experience that if you can establish a healthy relationship, both of you, with your own sexuality. You get a chance to go that deep with someone. So that's something I'd like to talk about as well. Absolutely. I would love to come back on. I love talking about all these topics, especially, you know, female sexuality. And, you know, I love working with the women that I work with every day to just empower them to really feel and embrace that type of energy and what that means to walk in the world, feeling connected to your feminine energy. So yeah, all these right up my alley. I'd love to come back. Yeah, cool. And and another thing that, that, that I think about that I want to talk about is, um, I don't know, you could probably provide some advice on this about like, what do women want in a man, so to speak, you know, like in the in Kim and Ami's uh, commentary about what she wants in a man. She wants a man to basically own his cock, own his power and take her and ravish her. And David Data talks about this, too. You know, the, the mature masculine is essentially, you know, there's a fine line between ravishment and rape, you know, and this is where it gets a little tricky. One's mm. filled with love and one's filled with fear. But they're the same kind of that aggressive masculine energy that's taking the feminine, that's penetrating, you know, and all the, all of those words are involved and it's kind of scary and intimidating. But I'd love to have your thoughts about the masculine as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think David's book would also be another really good one for us both to review and to go over because, you know, I read I read um, that book of his and I always mess up the title. But Way of the Superior Man. Way, yeah, Way of the Superior Man. And I found it fascinating as a woman to read. And because I think that he hits a lot of really great points of really what women are looking for. I don't want to speak for all, but yeah, I think that would be another great show. Yeah. So... We can start to wrap this up, I believe. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about the book or anything that's else on your mind that you felt like you haven't got a chance to share yet? Um, no, not really. I, I just, I highly recommend it. You know, I think it's pretty amazing. I don't know, Neil, maybe I'll meet him one day. Maybe I'll put it on my vision board. But to have somebody <laughs> to come out and to write so freely and openly about this like I give this guy tons of credit to just be brutally honest and sharing so much of his sexual life and stuff that some people are going to look at as like crazy and weird and wacky. And mm -hmm. like you had said earlier, once you, once you start seeing more people walking in their truth and they're not being ashamed of it and like for him to, I mean, this is what didn't it hit like the New York times bestseller. If it hasn't already, yeah, I'm sure did. that it will, mm -hmm. you know, and, and his other book, the game he wrote that, that and the Bible are the two most stolen books in bookstores. It's like, that's wild to me. But, um, are you serious? Yes. Yeah, wow. I heard that maybe on a podcast that he had said. But, but yeah, you know, I just found it to be 
just really inspiring to see somebody in their raw truth. And I don't think it's just a book for men. I think it's a book for men and women and anyone that has ever struggled in relationships and is look or maybe even interested about all these different types of sexual explorations that you can do, that you can try, the different communities that are out there. I mean, some of this stuff was really new to me. And, you know, I'm 38 years old and you know, I've had plenty of experiences, but I didn't know a lot about a lot of these worlds out there. So some of it was very, you know, new and shocking for me to read about, too. So I think it's a very educational book. I love the pieces of the therapy and the psychotherapy in it, and I would highly recommend it to anybody out there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree, too. And I wrote my blog post. I've got um, sort of 20 lessons or tips that kind of I took away from reading the truth and how I feel about relationships. And I'll just, I'll just give you like five of them. Um, for example, like number one thing that you can't find happiness outside of yourself. Um, and you'll, to discover that truth, you kind of give everything you got to finding it out there. And then you end up feeling like it just doesn't quite satisfy that urge. You know, you're still thirsty. And then the epiphany happens that it's like a choice within yourself, you know, and it's, it's, it gets kind of esoteric too. But Neil was able to tap into that, that insight as well in the book. And so much of this is about awareness, 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 shining light on our shadows and our shames and our fears and using our relationships as reflections back to our own triggers, our own wounds, our own insecurities and emotions so we can own them and not point fingers at other people for causing them and, and blaming, you know, so we're not blaming other people. We're owning ourselves and our emotions and then feeling safe enough in a relationship where we can admit it and bring it out and open. So that's the shining the light of awareness. That's the masculine energy of consciousness shining light onto the feminine energy of the, our emotions. And then another thing we talk about therapy. Um, one thing that they love to tell you in therapy is that you're somehow addicted. You're broken. You've got disorders. You need their books, their drugs or their therapy their hands in your life in order to get better. You are an addict. You're somehow messed up. You're not normal and you need to get fixed. And I think this is something that's important to realize, especially for someone who's in the self-help, self-development, personal growth kind of niche, you know, that it's, you can start to feel like you need to fix yourself all the time. And that maybe in order to be happy, you have to find that next emotional wound that you're still, you're not attracting the perfect partner. So what's wrong with you? What's, what do you got to do? I think for a little while, the therapy and the books and the self-help stuff works for a while, but eventually you'll take, you'll start to feel empowered enough where the only thing you really, really need is your consciousness, your awareness, and then your own unconditional love and your patience and to stay present with yourself. And and you will have the tools it takes to kind of navigate this territory and face your fears in this arena. So, and two more that I want to write about or that I want to mention here is, um, let's see that you recycle the same kind of childhood traumas over and over until you become conscious and integrate that lesson and grow from it. So, you know, recognizing your patterns that you brought forth in all your relationships, you kind of recycle those issues too. And one of the, one of the best books I love about this is called um, homecoming by John Bradshaw. And then another one is attached by uh, Amir Levine. So those are two good things if you're interested in learning about that. And then sex itself is not love. Sex is hugely powerful and it's not the prize either, which, which is funny because Neil wrote the game, which was all about basically sex, like how to get the prize at the end of the tunnel, how to, how to manipulate and seduce women to get the prize. And like, you got to score with a 10, you know, you got to get the hottest girl in the bar 
And that's, and then if you could do that, then you're a better man for it, basically. But what we learned through the book, The Truth, and through our own experiences here is sex itself is not love, but, and it doesn't satisfy that inner longing. And, and what Kim Anami says in The Well-Fucked Woman is sex that energizes you and expands your being is good, but sex that depletes you or shrinks your being is like junk food sex. So that's, that's kind of a good analogy. Junk food sex versus, you know, healthy expansive sex life-changing sex example so and then lastly everyone is a mirror the thing that i always like to say this is like relationships intimate relationships are your perfect opportunity for enlightenment you know sex sex is an opportunity for your own enlightenment and just like intimate relationships they were they're going to reflect back your innermost wounds and demons right back at you so pay attention to those and uh, they're like your signal on your on your path to becoming a whole person so I love the truth. It was an awesome book. Yeah. And I just have to put one more thing in and defend yes. therapy a little bit here. Oh, right and on. I'd like to say that, you know, not when you read parts of this book in therapy, it, therapy can seem pretty shaming and embarrassing and trying to fix you and categorizing you as a diagnosis and stuff like that. And I just want to say that there aren't, you know, not all therapists are out there doing that. There are some therapists <clears throat> like myself that look at people not as diagnoses, but as mind, body, soul, and spirit and human beings who are just trying to do the best they can in this world with what they've got. Absolutely. So, you know, not all therapy is, is crazy scary. Well, well, amen to that, because I think we can, we have to be, we all have to get our own therapy and then be a therapist to others, you know, in that way of, of understanding being there for people, you know, like going through this stuff is, is difficult. We can't really do it alone. So I, I definitely think having someone who's gone through their own uh, experiences and can be present for you while you go through yours and kind of be a good, compassionate listener. And like, you know, I think so you can do therapy as well. Everyone needs to kind of go through their own therapy if they want to safely navigate their emotional world and growth and stuff like that. It's really good for you. I agree. Well, thanks, Jeff. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, April. I'm, I'm so so glad to talk about this with you, and I can't wait to get you on another episode. Great. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and um, check out the, the show notes. We'll put some links in there for you for everything we need. So this is the Make a Mistaker podcast, and signing off. I'll see you next time.